As Murph mentioned, we're going to be starting a new series this morning that we're calling Devoted. We're going to be looking at uh, the early Christian church and some of the things that they did, activities that they did, the things to which they were devoted, and, and they kind of come together in two general categories. First, they were devoted to God. They had an unswerving commitment to Jesus Christ, but they were also devoted to one another. And that was one of the things that the, that the people around them noticed that was different about them from anybody and everybody else. They had this unswerving commitment as a community to one another. And so we're going to be talking about that over the next month or so. And as I mentioned, so last week we celebrated Easter Sunday. We celebrated Jesus' resurrection. And the question is, okay, what comes after the resurrection? What was going on in the days immediately following Jesus' resurrection? I want to talk about that this morning because it really leads into this series that we're doing called Devoted, where we're looking at what the early Christians were devoted to and how that affects our lives. So if you think about it for a minute, if you've ever read through the book of Acts, which is the one, hist uh, it's, it's the history of the early church that we have in the New Testament. If you've ever read through the book of Acts, you notice that in the opening chapters, it talks about Jesus spent about 40 days with his followers after he had risen from the dead. He actually didn't go right back up into heaven. He went up there for, for a short period of time, came back down, spent 40 days with his followers, talking with them, spending time with them, preparing them to carry on the work that he had started himself and that he wanted them to finish. And in the opening verses of Acts chapter 3, Luke, who was a doctor but also an historian, he writes and he says, after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them, this is to his followers, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. So Jesus has died. Three days later, he's risen from the dead, and then he starts spending time with his followers, with his disciples, and one of the key things he wants to accomplish is to make sure that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's alive. That's not a hallucination. It's not something that they imagined. It's not something, you know, people didn't steal the body and make up this story. Jesus wanted them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had risen from the dead. So he spent time with them. He ate with them, showing them that he was physically risen from the dead and wasn't just some sort of an ethereal spirit. He appeared to them both individually and in groups. And as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul writes a number of years later, and he says that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. Now, individuals can hallucinate, but you don't have 500 people sharing the same hallucination at the same time. And Paul makes the point, he says, you know what, many of those people are still alive at the time that Paul was writing this. So he's essentially saying, if you don't believe it, you can go and ask those people and they'll be able to tell you, yes, I saw Jesus with 500 other people and he unquestionably was alive. So Jesus wanted his followers to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was alive, but he also wanted them to have a deeper understanding of the mission that he had given them to spread the news about who he was and what he had done. He wanted them to spread that news around the world. So he spent those 40 days talking with them about, as, as Luke puts it, the kingdom of God. So prove to them he's alive, get them prepared for the mission that he's got for them, and then he leaves. He goes back up into heaven and that's where he is today. And he's left his followers on the earth 
to carry out his mission. Ten days later, so 40 days after Jesus had risen from the dead, he spent that time with them. Ten days later, on, on what we call the day of Pentecost, there was a Jewish festival, the Feast of First Fruits. And so Jews from all over the known world were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And in the midst of them were a group of about 120 followers of Jesus. We often think of the 12 disciples, and there were the 12 disciples. There were actually 120 people whom, after Jesus has risen from, has risen from the dead, considered themselves to be followers of Jesus. So they're there in the midst of the, these Jews, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes down, and the people from all over the world hear this group of Christians. They were Jews who had become followers of Jesus. They hear this group of Christians speaking about Jesus, but not speaking about Jesus necessarily in, in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, languages that were used immediately in Jerusalem. They heard them speaking in their own languages, maybe a dozen or so different languages from all over the known world at that point. And these people are looking at one another and saying, what is going on with this? These people are talking about Jesus and they don't normally speak those languages. How is this happening? And some of them start saying, oh, you know what, these guys are drunk, you know, and just, they're just babbling and you're just kind of imagining what they're saying. And then this guy named Peter stands up and he says, these people are not drunk the way that you think they are. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. They haven't had time to get drunk at this point. This is what God was talking about in the prophet Joel, in what we would refer to as the Old Testament. For them, it was their scriptures. This is what the prophet Joel said God was going to do in the last days. He was going to pour out his Holy Spirit on his people, and all sorts of miraculous signs and wonders are going to happen. People are going to prophesy. God is going to do some amazing things, and this is one of those things that God had promised that he was going to do when the Holy Spirit came upon his people. And then Peter, you got to remember, this Peter is the same guy who just like two months or so before had, had been so afraid of a servant girl that he denied three times that he knew Jesus. And we talked about Peter several weeks ago and how God transformed him both by forgiving him, by him seeing the resurrected Jesus, and by putting the Holy Spirit on Peter. And this Peter who was so afraid six, eight weeks or so earlier that he denied Jesus this day, he preaches what was, the, in a sense, the first Christian sermon ever preached. He talks about how God was going to pour out his spirit, and he was doing it this morning at, at this time when he, was with, when he was there in Jerusalem. And then he says to his audience, get this, he says to his audience, it is your fault that Jesus was crucified. He died for your sins. Not the way to win friends and influence people, you know. This is not the, the best necessarily thing for Peter to do in one sense, but it was absolutely true because the message of Jesus is that he died on the cross for my sins. He died on the cross for your sins. He died on the cross for all of our sins. Peter is making this point to these people and he talks about how then God raised him from the dead. And all of a sudden, all these people are just blown away by this. And they look at Peter and they just say, so what should we do? Because they're just amazed and they're just cut to the heart is the way that Luke puts it because of the message that Peter has brought to them. 
And when he finished speaking, 3,000 of those Jews became followers of Jesus that day. Luke puts it this way. Those who accepted his message were baptized as a way of indicating that they were now followers of Jesus. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Christianity on that one day, the day of Pentecost, went from 120 people in the morning to 3,000 people by the end of the day. God was beginning to do an incredible work in and through his followers. He was beginning the process of spreading the message, of spreading the good news of the kingdom of God, of changing the world. And he was using people like Peter who were broken, who were fallen, who were imperfect, but who were ultimately devoted to him and were so transformed by the power of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ that they were willing to share that. They were excited to share that with the people around them. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you grew up in the United States, if you grew up in most of the Western world, you're familiar with, G with the, the concepts surrounding Jesus' death and his resurrection. Even if you don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, even if you don't believe that, Today is probably not the first time that you're hearing about it. We celebrate Good Friday. We celebrate Easter every year. We talk about it over and over and over again, both at Renaissance and in pretty much any Christian church, at least in the United States. And so these concepts are familiar with us, but put yourself in the shoes of these brand new Christians, of these 3,000 people, all right? A couple of months earlier, there are all these rumors swirling around about who Jesus is. Some people are saying he's a great teacher. Some are saying he's a miracle worker. Some are saying he's a charlatan. Some are saying he's a magician. Some are saying that he's a revolutionary. Some people are saying, hey, maybe he's the Messiah. There's all this, this, these rumors swirling around about who Jesus is. And then a, <clears throat> just a, a week before he dies, he enters into Jerusalem in this triumphant way, riding on a donkey. People are taking these palm branches, laying them down on the road, kind of like rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. Everybody is shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Here comes our king riding into Jerusalem. They're all excited about him. And then four days later, their same people are shouting, crucify him. The next day, he's dead. He's buried. He's in the tomb. And these people are like, well, that's it. This guy, we thought he might be the Messiah. He's dead. I guess that's it. We got to look somewhere else. But then three days later, they start hearing these rumors. Hey, did you hear? Gee, the, the tomb was empty. What, somebody steal the body? Well, I don't know. Hey, somebody said that he rose from the dead. No, he couldn't have risen from the dead. Well, hey, remember when he raised Lazarus from the dead? Yeah, so maybe it's true. And these rumors are beginning to float around that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they grow and they grow and they grow because Jesus is appearing to more and more and more people. Ultimately, to well over 500 people had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And so now they're beginning to think and they're wondering, huh, was he the Messiah? I don't know, maybe he was, maybe he was just a poser. You know, did he really rise from the dead or did these people hallucinate? They're beginning to ask all these questions and they're wondering. And now they're there in Jerusalem. 
God does this amazing thing with people able to speak languages that they had never spoken before. They hear them proclaiming the news about Jesus, and 3,000 of them say, I believe. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that he's risen from the dead. And they're just incredibly excited about this. And they're like, what do we do now? Where do we go now? If I were one of them, I'd want to find out everything I could about Jesus. I don't want to be like, who was he really? Man, I remember, you know, I heard him once. He was, he was talking there, you know, on the, on the shore of the Lake of Galilee. And I caught some of his message, but man, I wish I'd been there and I could hear more about it because this guy's amazing. And, I, and I'm committing my life to following him. I want to understand who he is. I want to know how he wants me to live. I want to know how I can grow and have a relationship with him. How should my faith in him affect my life on a day-to-day basis? But they got a problem. Jesus is gone. He's gone back up into heaven and they can't ask him. And they're like, oh man, I wish I were with him for the three and a half years that were on the earth. So they look at each other and they essentially say, we gotta ask the guys who were with him. We gotta turn to the apostles, the guys who spent every day with Jesus and find out from them what was Jesus like? What did he do? What did he teach? What would Jesus say about how I ought to live my life now that I'm a follower of Jesus? And that's exactly what they did. Luke goes on in Luke chapter two, after this message, after this sermon that Peter has given, after 3,000 people turned their lives over to follow Jesus Christ, Luke says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Essentially, what what Luke is saying is they were devoting themselves to the message of Jesus. They're devoting themselves to the teaching about Jesus. They're devoting themselves to fellowship, to one another, to their relationship with one another. They're devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, which is a reference to communion. We'll be talking about that in in a couple of weeks. That it's to the worship of God and to prayer as well, to this communication with God, making their requests known to him, praying for other people. Essentially, they're devoting themselves to God and to one another as a community. So Luke says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the message that the guys who knew Jesus were bringing to them. And if I were one of them, I would be listening to what these guys had to say because they had spent the time with Jesus. They knew what Jesus taught. And, they, and that would be the way that I was going to find out more about who Jesus was. And the amazing thing is that God kept bringing more and more and more people to faith in Jesus. This movement that started out as an insignificant sect of one of the minority religions in the world, really Judaism, Christianity initially was an insignificant sect of Judaism, went from 120 people to 3,000 in one day. A week or so later, another 2,000 people, we read in the book of Acts, another 2,000 people come to faith in Christ. And over the next several decades, Christianity spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. 
And so the apostles are teaching people, they're answering questions, they're explaining things to people, and they begin writing down the things that they had learned. See, as Christianity is spreading, they can't be everywhere at once. Some of them did travel around. The apostle Paul, for example, traveled around and he spoke in, in many different cities to many different Christians and he would teach them. But they would also write letters to these people. They wrote 21 different letters to Christians scattered throughout the, the, the Roman Empire. They wrote four different biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of Jesus' followers. Mark was a close friend of Peter, so he got his information from Peter. Luke was this historian who we're, who we're talking about right now. He researched and he asked people, what, what did Jesus say? What did he do? John was Jesus' best friend. So we've got these four different biographies of Jesus from four somewhat different perspectives, but they give us a picture of who Jesus was. And the, the early Christians were devoted to the apostles' teaching because they wanted to know everything they could about, about who Jesus was and what he had done. And then as the first century went on, starting around 60 or so AD, the apostles began dying off. And in fact, most of them were actually killed for their faith. And by the end of the first century, all of the people who had known Jesus, who had lived with Jesus, who had spent that time with them, all of them were dead. And the early Christians started looking at one another and talking with them one another saying, how are we gonna preserve this teaching about who Jesus was? So they began collecting the writings of the apostles. They began co collecting the documents that were written by these early Christians who had spent their time with Jesus. And by the time they were finished, they had collected 27 different documents about Jesus. The four biographies I mentioned, one book of history, the book of Acts, which we're talking about now, that a historian wrote to tell us about the early Christian church, 21 different letters, we call them sometimes the epistles, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and so on, and the book of Revelation, which is a book of prophecy. And those 27 documents were collected together, and they form what we now know as the New Testament. The Old Testament was the collected writings of the prophets, of the Old Testament prophets, of the people whom God had used to, to share his news with the people of Israel. The New Testament being the collected documents of the apostles, the people whom God had used to share the good news of who Jesus was. We, we today don't have the opportunity to ask Jesus about himself directly the way that, that the, the disciples did. We don't have the opportunity to ask questions of the apostles, but we do have their writings. So we have the same access to the same basic material that the early Christians had so that we can find out more about who Jesus is and how we can have a relationship with him. And that's the primary way that we can know Jesus. And that's why we as a church at Renaissance are devoted to what God teaches us in the New Testament because our ultimate goal is to know Jesus and to make him known. And the best way we can know him and the best way we can know how he wants us to live is by reading what he's revealed to us in the Bible. Ann and I, my wife Ann and I, uh, dated for five years. We actually started dating while I was a, a junior in college. She was a freshman. I robbed the cradle. Hey, you know, she's wonderful. And I was, it was, yeah, man. Anyway, I could go on and on about, uh, about my wife. But 
during that time, during those five years that we dated, a lot of the time we were together, but a lot of the time we were apart, especially over the summers when she was down in Atlanta and I was up here either in Connecticut or in New Jersey. And, you know, this is in the early 1980s. We didn't have email, you know, and, and that sort of stuff. So we didn't have cell phones. So we'd talk on the phone some, but we'd write letters back and forth, you know, like with a pen and a piece of paper, and you put a stamp on it. Some of you who are like under 20 don't know what a letter is. I don't, I actually can't remember the last time uh, that I wrote a letter. My handwriting is so horrible you can never read. Anyway, forget all that. So Ann and I are writing letters back and forth. I'm working at my computer job after I had, had graduated from college. And the first thing that I would do every day when I came home from work is go to the mailbox and see if there was a letter from Ann. And if there was a letter from Ann, I drop everything, I sit down on the couch, open the letter, and I read it. Why? Because I love her. And I want to get to know her better. I want to know how she thinks. I want to know what she was doing. I want to know what she's thinking about. I want to know the questions that she's asking of me. So I'm reading these letters. And on the days when she hadn't written me a letter, I'd maybe grab one of the old letters that she had written to me, and I'd read it again. I was devoted to her. Nobody had to say to me, my roommates didn't have to say to me, hey, you know, you got three letters from Anne waiting on your desk. You might want to consider reading them. You know, no, I couldn't not read them because I was so in love with her and I wanted to get to know her better. And the same was true for these early followers of Jesus. Nobody had to say to them, hey, by the way, you might want to find out from the apostles. You might want to find out from the guys who knew Jesus what he was like. You might want to read some of the things that they wrote. No, they couldn't get enough. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching because they were devoted to Jesus because they wanted to know more about this person who had given his life for them and who was powerful enough to rise from the dead so that they could have new life. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching because it was their lifeline, essentially, to the person who had given his life for them. Now, we live in a very different society today, very different than the first century. We are so much busier than they were. We have so many more distractions than they do. I was reading recently a, a book by a guy named Cal Newport. I read an article that he had written in, in Forbes magazine, and I just had to go out and get the book that he'd written. It's called Deep Work. And, and in this book, Cal Newport talks about the challenges that we face in our technological society today with all of the distractions that we have and all of these distractions conspire together to make it difficult for us to focus, to concentrate, to do deep work, as he puts it, for any extended period of time. And as a result, he argues that our productivity in some sense has actually decreased as things like email and Facebook and instant messaging and all the other great technological advances, as those have increased, our ability to do deep work has decreased because our focus is always so scattered all over the place. They didn't have that issue then. It would take days and weeks for news to spread, and they had to wait for it to arrive to them. Today, something happens halfway around the world you know, it's, it's, it's 9.45 now. 
Service ends at 10 o'clock. At 10.05, you can know something that happened at 9.46. No problem, because somebody's going to post it somewhere on the internet. And it's great to have all of those, the, the access to instantaneous news and to email and, and Facebook and, and social media and all those other things. But it also presents a challenge for us. I don't know about you. For me, it is so easy when I'm sitting down to pray, when I'm sitting down to read the Bible, when I'm sitting down to spend time with God, if I don't make a concerted effort to focus on Him, my mind is going to be distracted by all these other things. And they didn't have quite that same problem back then. So it's arguably more difficult for us than it was for them in some sense to be devoted to Jesus and to be devoted to one another. It's more difficult, but it's not impossible. I was recently talking to a guy. He's a small business owner. He's got young children at home. He's constantly busy. God, you know, gets up at 5.30 in the morning to go work out, gets in his car, drives to his office. He's there, comes home, spends a little bit of time with his family, collapses on the couch, maybe watches the news for a few minutes, goes to bed, gets up the next morning. It's the same thing. You guys live that kind of life as well, whether you're commuting into New York, whether you're home with your kids and just transporting them all over the place. We live in an incredibly busy society, and this guy lives in the same society in which he lives, in which we live. But over the last several months, he's come to faith in Jesus. He's realized that Jesus died for his sins that Jesus rose again, and it's begun to transform his life. And so he was telling me that even though he was used to getting up at 5.30 in the morning to work out, he now gets up at 4.45 so that he can spend 45 minutes just reading Scripture so that he can find out more about the God who loves him enough that he gave his son so that he could have new life and be transformed in his life. He doesn't consider it a chore. He considers it a privilege. And he was telling me how God has been working in his life through that. I heard uh, of, of another woman who last year, actually, we were, uh, many of us went through the book called Too Busy Not to Pray by a pastor named Bill Hybels. We did a series on prayer on, uh, here on Sunday mornings, and some of us read that together. Some of us read it in our small groups. Some of us read that book individually. And there was one woman who was so excited, not, not guilt-ridden, but excited by what Bill Hybels was saying about the importance of prayer and how we can't allow ourselves not to spend time in prayer. The busier we are, the more we need to spend time in prayer. She was so excited that she decided to get up 30 minutes earlier every day, and she's still doing it. And it's transformed her life as she's spending time with God. Now, I know some of you are not morning people, and that's fine. You know, maybe that's not the way for you to do it. Maybe you need to spend time with God during your lunch hour. Or maybe you don't actually have the opportunity to take a break for lunch. You're just eating at your desk, but you've got time perhaps during your commute. Or maybe when you get home, you can, you can say to your family members, hey, just let me have 15 minutes. Let me have 30 minutes, and then I'll spend time with you. Or maybe it's just before you go to bed. I don't know. It doesn't matter so much when you spend time with God, but that you spend time with God. Because if we want to know who Jesus is, if we want to know what it means to have a relationship with him, if we want to grow in our faith and become more and more and more like Jesus. We got to spend time with him. We've got to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. 
We've got to be devoted to prayer. And we've got to be devoted to one another. We'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. But for today, I want to, I, I, I want to share with you a verse that has been both challenging but also very, very encouraging to me. It's in the Old Testament. Israel's King David writes this in Psalm 34. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him, who turns to him and says, Lord, I need you. My life is difficult. I'm feeling overwhelmed in these situations. And who turns to, to God and says, okay, I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna look for you to work in my life. And it's, it's been so encouraging to me because like the rest of you, there are times when I'm getting discouraged, when I'm feeling like I'm distant from God, when I'm feeling like maybe he's not answering my prayers, when I'm beginning to ask questions and, and have doubts, and I need to remind myself to keep coming back to him and taste. And when I do that, I see that God is good and that I'm blessed as I turn to him to meet my needs. The Apostle Paul makes a similar point in, uh, I'm sorry, the Apostle Peter makes a similar point in one of the letters that he had written. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, the Word of God, the Bible, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter is basically saying, just as we need to nourish ourselves physically, we also need to nourish ourselves spiritually. If we want to grow physically, we've got to eat good food. If we want to grow spiritually, we've got to ingest good spiritual food as well. And Peter is saying, do that by spending time with God in the Bible. If you're not doing that, if you're not spending time with God every day, not just, you know, Sundays when you come here and, and, and you pray and, and you worship and you sing and you celebrate and you hear a message, if you're not spending time on your own with God every day, I want to challenge you to do something for the rest of the month of April, for the entire month of April. Carve out 15 minutes, just 15 minutes out of your schedule, whether it's the morning, whether it's in your commute, whether it's at lunchtime, night, doesn't matter when, it just matters that you do that. Carve out that 15 minutes to just simply taste and see. Taste and see, is God good? And if he is, you're gonna wanna spend more and more and more time with him. If you're not sure where to begin with that, Go to the website, Bible.com. They've got several hundred different options for reading plans, plans that can take you anywhere from five minutes to 30 minutes or so each day, however long you want to spend reading in the Bible. Pick one of those, especially maybe one that, that starts in the New Testament, and use that for 30 days and taste and see if God really is good and ask him to increase your desire to be devoted to him. If you want to go a step further than that, Michael mentioned the project. Project is, is four Saturday nights, about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes or so, interactive discussion, conversation with one another. We go through four different key chapters in the Bible, and we talk about them. We talk about what God has shown us about himself. We talk about what God has shown us about ourselves. We ask questions. We answer questions. We talk with one another. We pray with one another, and we get a better idea of who God is, who we are, what it means to have a relationship with him, what Jesus has done for us. We kind of try to put it all together and see how he wants us to live our lives in light of the fact that we're followers of Jesus. So if you haven't gone through the project before, let me encourage you, 
sign up for that. You can do that at the Info Center. You can go to our website and do it. You can ask questions about that. I usually hang out up front. Love to answer any questions that you might have about the project. So we kind of put it all together here. We've got these early followers of Jesus. God has just transformed their lives in a, in a very short span of time. And they are so eager to get to know him, to find out more about him, to know how he wants them to live, to grow in their relationship with him and one another. So they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the teaching of the guys who knew Jesus and could tell them, what's he like? How does he want us to live our lives? And then God used them to change the world. And here we are 2,000 years later, we're halfway around the world, very different culture, but we have access to the same teaching about Jesus to which they had access. God has preserved that for us so that we can know who Jesus is and how we can grow in our relationship with him. And I'm convinced that if we do what the early church did, if we devote ourselves to God, if we devote ourselves to one another, then he can use us to change our world just like he used them to change their world. And so my encouragement, my, my challenge really to all of us is let's take the time to get to know God better, to ask the questions, to pray, to read the Bible, to find out more about who Jesus is and how he wants us to live our lives. And let's ask him to use us to bring glory to himself and blessing to the people around us. Let's pray for a minute. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you, you didn't just leave after you rose from the dead, but you spent that time with your apostles, with your disciples, teaching them more and more about yourself. And I thank you that you prompted them, your spirit prompted them to write down the things that they had learned from you. I thank you for preserving them for us so that we, as your followers today, can learn about who you are and can grow in our relationship with you. And I pray for each of us that you would give us that same desire, that same devotion to your truth that the early Christians had. And I pray that as you do that, I pray that your spirit would transform us to become more and more like yourself. And as that happens, I pray that you would use us to spread the good news of your death and of your resurrection to the people around us. And may they be transformed and join us in worshiping you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out this morning. I'll be hanging out up front if you wanna say hi. Hope you have a great week.